This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and Science Fiction. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. And if you're new to the show, thanks for stopping by. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. As loyal listeners know on this show, you get to hear from today's busiest and best science fiction and fantasy writers. But wouldn't it be wonderful if you could hear from one of the grandparents of the genre, too? Well, today we get the next best thing. I'm speaking today to the intellectual and literary heir to the author of canonical novels like The Time Machine and The War of the Worlds. Of course, I'm referring to H.G. Wells, and today on the show is Stephen Baxter, who has recently published The Massacre of Mankind, the alliteratively titled sequel to the alliteratively titled classic The War of the Worlds. The Massacre of Mankind isn't just any riff on what happened after the Martians' failed invasion, of England, but it's the sequel authorized by the H.G. Wells estate, and Stephen Baxter is the vice president of the International H.G. Wells Society. Stephen's also the author of over 20 novels and dozens of short stories. He's won the John W. Campbell Award and the Philip K. Dick Award more than once, and numerous British Science Fiction Association awards, and he's been nominated for Hugo's many times. And he now joins me on the line from his home in Northumberland in England. Stephen, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for inviting me. You're not new to writing H.G. Wells sequels. Your 1995 novel, The Time Ships, was a sequel to Wells's Time Machine. That was 22 years ago, and I'm wondering what led you to write the sequel to another, arguably even more famous Wells classic. Um, a number of things, really. Um, at the time, as you say, 22 years ago, uh, with the time chips, uh, it was a, the book was well received. It was a great success, and a, as you mentioned, I, uh, I'm, I've become a kind of Wellsian myself now, and that drew me into that uh, the whole world of Wellsian scholarship, which is really interesting. You know, Wells is a fascinating character beyond this, the science fiction. Um, uh, and at the time, I, I was very tempted to do more sequels. You can imagine the time is. The Time Shifts was time for the 100th anniversary of The Time Machine. So two years later would have been the 100th anniversary of, uh, of War of the Worlds and so on. But, you know, I had my own books to write and I didn't want to become just a, a, a Wells sequelizer. Uh, so I thought it would become a stale a bit quick. So put the, that, that the ambition to one side for a while. Um, and really it was as uh, uh, last year, 2016, approached that uh, I started thinking about going back to that kind of project. Uh, Wells' 150th birthday, 
Um, this year, of course, is the 120th birthday of of uh, War of the Worlds and so on. So there's, you know, especially his 150th birthday was going to attract some attention, clearly. And uh, which is never a bad thing to have, you know, interest in the subject of the book that you're writing. Um, so I thought it was time. And, and one final piece was the, really the, the uh, anniversaries of World War I. Um, World lived through World War I. He was 50 uh, in, 19, in 1916. And he was quite an active figure in that war. It changed his view on uh, war and um, government and mankind's future quite gravely. He went to the trenches, and, you know, and saw the reality. Um, so, um, and all that could be reflected, it seemed to me, in my sequel. You know, the, there's a different World War One, following on from the Martian invasion, um, a different perspective, and yet this great tragedy still unfolds. Um, so all that seemed, uh, um, you know, opportune timing to me, and so I went for it. Because H.G. Wells wrote The War of the Worlds in 1898? First, first published in 1897 as a magazine serial, and then the first novel was 1898. So if he had the experiences that he had in World War One, do you think the novel would have been very different? I mean, what, you know, his notion of what war is and Martians as stand-in for any kind of invader? Or, of course, that's just pure speculation, but I wonder, since you brought, you brought up his changing views about war. Yeah, good question. Well, um, I, yes, it clearly would have been different. Um, but, but the young Wells who wrote The War of the Worlds was kind of deep enough to be able to foresee, I think, some of the um, graver consequences of, of, a, of a massive war. I think his inspirations in terms of warfare was a, was a somewhat forgotten conflict now. The Franco-Prussian War, 1870 or so, when the, the, the Germans had just unified and they invaded France, they got as far as besieging Paris. So that was a great shock for the British, you can imagine, even though the British weren't directly involved. Uh, and also, to be honest, the American Civil War had been a massive mechanized war on a scale that hadn't been seen before. So all that's like 20 years before, 25 years before, so in, uh, within Wells' lifetime at the time, he would have been aware of that kind of history, just as, you know, the Second World War and uh, Vietnam and so on are in our cultural background now. Um, so he was extrapolating all that, I think, um, adding in um, colonial guilt for the British, you know. How would it be to be on the receiving end of a, of a colonizing wave by technologically superior beings of some kind. How would it feel if they came here and did to us what we have done in Australia and Tasmania and so on? But as he worked through the book, one thing I really enjoyed about working on this book was getting hold of um, some of the scholarly materials and the early manuscripts of the, of, of the novel and so on. And as he worked through the, the drafts of the novel, he got deeper and deeper into the subject in a way. The, the early draft is... The earliest drafts are um, fairly straightforward in terms of the Martian invasion. It unfolds as we know it. They land, they head to London, the bacteria kills them. Um, but the character of the narrator who follows them around in, in the novel is, is quite different in the early drafts. In the, in the early drafts, he's, 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 uh, his wife is killed and he becomes a kind of traumatized survivor. And he, uh, but he's purposeful. He follows the Martians, meaning revenge, uh, intending revenge. And um, he falls in with a kind of resistance group in England under the Martians. He gets hold of explosives and he becomes a kind of suicide bomber. 
So, so in the climax of that draft, as he approached the Martians in London, he, he was going to blow one up, you know, take one with you. That was his plan, uh, to be a classic resistance fighter. Um, but of course, the Martians were dead already because of the bacteria. Well, in Wells' later drafts, um, heading towards the final novel draft, he, he got rid of a lot of that. The, the, the man is still traumatized, but he's baffled and bewildered. He's physically damaged, he's burned, um, bewildered. And he, he follows the, the Martians in a confused way. He doesn't really know what he's doing. He's kind of fascinated by them. Um, and in the end, he tracks them down to London and he presents himself in a kind of suicidal gesture, you know, get it over with. Um, so what I think Wells was groping for was the kind of deeper um, impact on the human of this massive mechanized warfare. And I think he was heading for, for what we'd now call shell shock or PTSD. Shell shock wasn't diagnosed uh, until the First World War, so 20 years later. But what he was groping for was something like the impact of uh, mechanized warfare on civilians and on soldiers. You know, this deeper psychological trauma that you you go through even if you survive. Um, so when you come to the First World War itself, at the beginning of that war, Wells was actually quite gung ho about it. He thought, "Good, we can knock over militaristic Germany and, and move forward in a better way." But as I said, when he went to the trenches and saw the reality of, of the war for himself, uh, I think that the, his, the young man's instinct about the horror of the war was really brought back to him. He saw the waste of war and, and, and so on. Um, so he wrote a couple of, of his social novels about the, about um, that aspect of the war. You know, the families in England getting letters home from the front and so on. Um, and as he moved on through his life, he became more... Um, pragmatic in a way. He no longer believed in toppling societies to build a utopia. He was much more pragmatic about how we should move forward. He was a key influence on the formation of the uh, Declaration of the Rights of Mankind as adopted by the UN after the war. You know, this basic um, uh, kind of uh, declaration of, of what human beings ought to be entitled to. Um, freedom of movement, freedom to... Uh, safety of, of, of life and health and so forth. Um, so he, he, he rode back from being the big utopian figure, dreams of world government and so on, into something much more pragmatic. You know, can we all agree that this is the basic way you should treat people and then, and then move on from there? So good question. I think if you'd written War of the World in 1927, say, it would have been much more, in a way, an extrapolation of what he did produce, you know, a, a horror story really about... Uh, trench warfare in, in, in England. Well, it's fascinating to hear you talk about the alternate or the earlier drafts of the novel and also some of the nascent ideas that are in the War of the Worlds, like the idea of shell shock, because I can see how you incorporated a number of those themes into the sequel. And even the way now you were describing how uh, Wells changed the role of his wife from having died to having Ultimately, you know, he loses track of her. He, you know, tries to keep her safe, but then he, he gets absorbed in, in tracking the Martians. And in your book, The Massacre of Mankind, there's a lot of criticism for the narrator in the original book, who whose name we discover is Walter Jenkins. And, uh, and I wondered if that was kind of your feeling that he neglected his wife a bit in The War of the Worlds. You know, he wasn't behaving the way you'd expect a loving spouse to behave. And you get to punish him, perhaps, or have him pay a price because his wife divorces him, and he seems very remorseful about it. And I wonder 
maybe there's some other things like that too. I don't know if that's exactly what you were doing, but it crossed my mind that, that you got a chance to editorialize in the way that you expanded on the story. Uh, in a way, yeah. Um, I, but I wouldn't say I was punishing poor old Jenkins exactly. It's more just following through the logic of his story. I mean, it is a sad thing that, uh, that you know, the traumatized soldier comes home and the family suffer often. You know, it's a difficult thing to deal with and they've been involved in something bigger than the family in a sense. And in, 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 in Jenkins's case, yeah, what he'd done is he kept on, he kept on, he kept, sorry, he keeps on telling you in the book that he's looking for his wife. He's trying to get to his wife. And in fact, what he actually does is go after the Martians, which is often geographically, you know, 180 degrees away. And it's part of the confusion uh, that Wells is trying to put over. You know, his, his conscious mind is warring with his subconscious mind. Um, but from the point of view of the wife, um, this is pretty difficult for her. And then she gets written up in this book in a slightly dismissive way, you know, as does um, the artilleryman in particular, who is, you know, clearly a, a slightly cynical figure, but he's a comical figure to the narrator. And he's presented that way as a as a buffoon, you know, drinking champagne in the ruins while dreaming of taking on the Martians. Um, so he wouldn't be too pleased with that uh, kind of portrayal, and he'd get his own back in, in some ways. So it's, it's partly playful, but I think it's probably uh, kind of realistic as well. Um, but, but I think I was also responding to the literary analysis of the book in the century, you know, since it was published. The, the narrator, there's been a lot of study by the literary types of the narrator and how he works in, in the novel. And he's, he's an unreliable narrator in the jargon where you can't quite believe what he says. You know, you have to um, uh, question all the time whether what he's saying is true. Is he really telling you the truth? Did he see the truth at the time? So, and simply because he goes through such psychological dramas, um, the episode with the curator uh, when the two of them are trapped in, in a ruined house next to a Martian pit and they have to keep silent to survive. So in the end, the, 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 the narrator is driven to kill uh, the curator just to shut him up. Um, it's a survival thing. And you could say, in a, in a way, killing another human is morally, uh, ethically, a much deeper crime than killing a Martian would have been, let's say. Um, killing a member of an alien species, killing one of your own species to survive is graver and thing to have to do. Um, and, and, but then you get his responses to pray in the middle of the night and find peace with God, even though earlier in the book he's described himself as, as, uh, as, as, as not religious, you know, as being beyond religion. So uh, this is all deliberate by Wells, I think. He's a, this, the narrator is a complex character, he's contradictory, and many of his contradictions are brought out by um, his experiences. But yes, I was, I was, you know, it was, there was plenty of material there to follow up on. So the narrator himself goes through um, psychoanalysis with Dr. Freud and others, uh, some of whom weren't at all sympathetic to shell shock. They'd try and jolt you back to the front line with pain um, therapy and so forth. But then the effect on the characters around him uh, unfolds as well. I tried to tell the, the, book, the story in the same kind of manner, in which, uh, uh, the, the same narrative style that Wells used, which is to have a witness who's looking back after the war. It's a kind of novelistic, uh, it's kind of biographical memoir, uh, historical memoir of, of the narrator's experience through the war with commentary of, you know, of information that he's gathered later about what happened in London and so on, things he didn't see directly. So now I have this character called Julie Elphinstone, who's the same. She's, 
she's, uh, she's writing some years after the second Martian War of her direct experiences, but also she can bring in um, uh, accounts and studies and so forth f uh, from other scholars following the war. So it's quite a good um, uh, viewpoint to tell such a complicated story through. But she herself was changed in, 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 the, in, the, uh, uh, in Wells' war. Uh, she's one of the women who were, uh, the narrator's brother meets during the flight from London. And she's only young, she's only 18 or 19, I think, and she, but she pulls a gun on these bandits who are trying to rob her of a horse and cart. Uh, so she's a, you know, a, a tough individual, uh, even in the original book. And so, you know, I could see her making a way through a landscape that's quite changed for all of us, but for women especially, after the Martian War, just as it was after the First World War. You know, the men were away fighting, the women had to work in the factories, and, and an entirely different role, different kinds of experience, different kinds of education were were thrust upon the, the, the women in Britain during the, the First World War. So that happens to her. She becomes, uh, she's very individual, uh, self-motivated. She's a journalist uh, who goes off to America in the end. She's rather disgusted by the militaristic response of British society to the Martian War. So she's a, you know, a useful, interesting character. Wells was, uh, you know, he had a, a, a lot of problematic relationships with women in his personal life, but he wrote about women very well, I think. And he saw clearly, one of his great strengths was to be able to see his society from the outside, and he could see clearly what a waste it was that women were not properly educated, and even if they were, they had very little chance to... Uh, uh, fulfill that education society. It's as if you're just wasting the, the resources of half the population. So Wells wrote about women very well. I quite like to think that he would have liked Julie, the way I developed her. And it's interesting that she refers to Walter, her former brother-in-law, as the quite often as the unreliable narrator with a capital U and a capital N, as if always reminding us that she questioned the veracity of his story. But it seems whenever there's a first-person narrator, you always have to question that, right? And it's almost like, as it, when I would read that, I would be reminded that, is she being unreliable? I mean, you can never 100% know. Oh, yeah, she's, uh, uh, she has her prejudices and so on, and uh, um, uh, everything is going to be filtered through that. Uh, but I think, where, I think where you can believe that she's being authentic is when, is when she's shocked and surprised. For instance, by the artilleryman, who I think is actually my favorite character from Wells' novel. Because he's 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 beneath the clownish lack of um, achievement. He's he's, quite, he's a pretty deep thinker, a brutal thinker about the war. He 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 could see if the Martians had survived, we'd have to go underground and and form a very tough, resilient, um, um, uh, resistance society really under the thumb of the conquerors. Um, and he could he could just about grope his way to seeing how it could be done. You know, you'd live in the sewers, you get books from new museums, and and try and keep up education and so on. Um, so in the in the second book, uh, that's what she sees is the buffoon who um, uh, was portrayed in the uh, uh, in the first book by Walter. But but she meets him again later, and he's found a way to very cynically survive in the Martian controlled areas within Britain. And he does it by betraying his fellow humans, basically. He's become a kind of grotesque mediator. Um, he's, he, he believes he's playing a long game. You know, he's going to uh, learn more about the Martians, get closer to them. He can do more damage in a way. And he's, and he's covertly helping humans in, a, in, a, in, a, in small ways. Um, 
but 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 I think Julie's re- reaction to him is, I hope, is pretty authentic. She's shocked by how capable is, how deeply deeply cynical he is, and how much he's actually achieved in, in a way. So I think that's 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 authentic narration. You know, when 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 the narrator is surprised by what they see, you get a more authentic reaction. You know, because it has a breakthrough their preconceptions. And it's interesting that you chose to expand on the story of the artillery man who, I'll just say, I mean, I, I, that's the chapter in War of the Worlds called The Man on Putney Hill, I think. That's right, yes. Yeah. And and so in the, in your book, you, you name him, you call him Bert Cook, and he goes on to pen his own memoir. And I think that's also a wonderful idea that, of course, the War of the Worlds, you know, in our world is a novel by H.G. Wells, but in The Massacre of Mankind, it's a it's a memoir, Walter Jenkins' memoir, the, uh, the narrative of the Martian Wars. And of course, he's not the only yeah. one who has written a memoir. So Bert Cook has also written The Memoirs of an Artilleryman, and there's a few other people, too, who are who are writing their memoirs, which makes perfect sense about such a, an, a literally earth-shattering uh, series mm-hmm. of events that take place in the War of the Worlds. But he is a really dark character. I mean, you took him and you, you know, extrapolated from the chapter in, in the War of the Worlds, and you you created um, someone as as you've just described, who is in some ways kind of monstrous. But it was an interesting choice, I thought, to to take his story and take him and bring him back in your book. Well, he did represent the that that kind of um, um you know the. the the underground survivor type. He was the emblem of that in in Wells's original book. Uh, so, uh, uh, as we discussed before, in the um, early drafts, there was a more uh, organised uh, resistance um, going on um, under a guy called Marriott. So, and as you mentioned, I've, I've used him uh, in the uh, in my novel as a as a more conventional kind of resistance leader, slightly more above ground and organised than. Than, um, uh, than than Burke Cook was, um, yeah. In in in, in Wells's early drafts, um, Marriott was more uh, of an organizer. He had a team around him. He was a bit of a sort of warlord uh, in a way. He was controlling resources and so on, and handing out rations. So he had a lot of local power over the people under him, if you like. Uh, whereas, was uh, whereas, um, but that all went. I think Wells didn't want to show any organised resistance to the Martians in his novel. It's, it's too shocking and smashing and destructive an event for us to be able to respond like that. Um, but uh, but with time, you know, um, it seemed to me um, people like Marriott could emerge, and so I've, I've put him there as a as a, as a relatively organised figure who's in in contact with the with the army outside the Martian conquered zone and so forth. So he was a he's a uh, an underground fighter, but semi-sanctioned by authority. Whereas Bert Cook is the real, real brutal underground terrorist type, um, uh, working beyond society and working against society's norms in a way. And yet, it, it, po- quite possibly, if the Martians had hung on, if they had smashed up human society, we only had one chance to get rid of them. Really, once the, the um, uh, the power sources were gone, the oil wells were smashed up, and the sh- ships were destroyed. It would have been very difficult for us on an occupied Earth to organize and fight back in any large-scale way. And it would have been people like Bert Cook who would have prevailed, if anybody could. 
and perhaps in a thousand years' time, you know, we might look back on him as as um, the way you look back on Spartacus, say, uh, fighting against ancient Rome now. Um, futile and brutal and as it may be, but he had the right idea, you know, you have to resist. And what's your feeling about the Martians? Because from the perspective of a of a human, they're so heinous and horrible. I mean, but it's the perspective of a, an insect that could easily get stepped on, or I suppose an, an ant that we could dip in chocolate and eat or something. Because when you describe how they relate with each other, they're very nurturing and concerned. When any and when another Martian ever falls ill, they immediately stop whatever assault the nearest fellow Martians, and they come to its aid. And the easiest route would be just to make them evil villains. Period. But it's more complicated in the way you portray them. Yeah. Again, I think all this is there in Wells. You know, it's implicit in Wells at least. But they are. Um, uh, moral on their level if you put aside the way they treat us as you say they they're loyal to each other they seem to be telepathic so that must imply a very open society um everyone has to be honest with each other there seems to be no hierarchy there uh, although there's only a few martians that you see in in, in wells's novel like a raiding party but no evidence of any hierarchy um and if you look at what they've done on their own planet um there's no evidence of war up there. You know, in 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 the story, we can see the canals and so forth, and it's you can see this world-spanning, global civilization, uh, and you'd see evidence of war um, in that reality, um, and yet we see we see that because we 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 were able to observe the big cannons firing the shells towards the earth. So um, they must have um, bred out warlike behaviour from themselves and become cooperative on a global scale. Um, many generations ago, who knows, a million years ago. Um, uh, so they're not warlike in any way with each other. They're united, they're trying to survive, they help each other, they come to the earth in order to, ex- to do the most moral thing they can do in, in their terms, which is to extend their, their, uh, uh, their own race, racial survival. Just as, for instance, Robert Heinlein would have argued for uh, you know, 50 years ago, Humanity has can't afford to keep all the eggs in one basket. We've got to move out to Mars uh, in order to survive the long term. Um, but what? But they have this terrible flaw that they see other thinking beings, i.e., us, as just uh, fodder, um, literally as fodder. Um, but as Wells points out, you know, he talks about how a, um, an intelligent rabbit might see um, the behaviour of humans. Um, yeah, you could be um, as a rabbit. You could be shot, skinned, cooked, and eaten by a priest who is the most moral person you can think of, and they would think nothing wrong of eating the rabbit. So this, so it's, it, I think it's an interesting um, sort of philosophical point looking forward uh, to when maybe one day we will meet the alien, um, when you've got gradations of intelligence and gradations of feeling and so forth. I think we might come to feel very uneasy about the way we treat the animals, intelligent creatures like pigs kept in tiny pens and so on. Um, they're less intelligent than us, but they're still intelligent. Uh, and and, and when, when the Martians come along, we will see ourselves more as part of the spectrum of intelligence and sensation and consciousness and conscience, I think, than we do now when we're kind of at the apex. Um, so I think a lot of that was implicit in Wells. Uh, uh, but it's, it's another one of these things that makes it a great book. You know, you can really dig in there 
and um, and uh, discover stuff uh, about worlds about worlds as creations that w- w- possibly were were subconscious to to him even. I gave a talk on this aspect of of uh, the War of the Worlds to a bunch of SETI scientists. You know, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm on an advisory group to do with that particular endeavor. So I talked to, about Wells' Martians in this way, as aliens, leave aside what they do to humans, but the way they behave towards each other and so forth. And um, For instance, you, you could argue that uh, they were possibly on the verge of terraforming um, Earth. I mean, these are ideas that were decades um, uh, later in the developing in terms of Wells' position in the development of science fiction. Um, but they had they were they were, they were churning up the landscape. They had the red weed covering everywhere, knocking off the local life form, um, life forms and so on. They'd already transformed one world on a global scale. Who's to say they couldn't have done the same with their replicating machines, and 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 and, and changed the world to their advantage? So so there there were very powerful um, uh, moral conundrum, I think. For us to look at, if, you, if if they weren't doing what they were doing to the humans, you'd, you'd admire them in every way. Probably, it's what they're doing to us that makes them um, um, seem evil. But they're not evil. They're not monsters, and certainly not in their own terms. And how do you decide what to keep and what to discard from the original setting? Because th- some of the notions that we obviously know today that aren't correct, like the sun is is slowly cooling or the planets that are further out are the oldest so if they have life forms they'd have the most advanced civilization those are some of the notions that seem rooted in wells's world that you carry forward i feel like there must be some decisions you've made about science what to keep and what to discard as far as creating the world of the massacre of mankind? Oh, yes, certainly. There were choices to make in terms of um, the science background, but also the historical background. And in terms of the science, I thought I had to stick with Wells' cosmology because this is why the Martians were coming. Uh, we know now that the sun is heating up slowly. So if anything, we will be driven out to Mars in, in you know half a million years. Um, in Wells's time, it was thought that the sun was cooling. So Mars is an ice age. We will be in an ice age, a permanent ice age, and eventually, and we'll all be fighting over Venus, moving towards the cooling sun. Um, and I thought I had to keep that kind of cosmology in there, in order to uh, uh, continue the story. Really, that, that that's that's why they were coming. They, they, that's why they came over in the first place, and it's why they come now. It's another resonance with our times, really. You know. The Martians are not really invaders. They're more like climate change refugees, you know. <laughs> um, they have to move because where they live is becoming uninhabitable. So I pretty much stuck to the sciences as best of, of the time as best I could, um, which, which gave me stuff to play with, like uh, a watery Venus with humanoids on, on, on Venus and so forth, which uh, uh, is, is, is not credible now, of course. Um, but, but there were historical or ultimately historical choices to make as well. So, you know, 20 years after the War of the Worlds was published, we had the First World War over, uh, is kicking off in Europe. Um, so how would history have been changed by by the war? Um, in an, you know, I, I wanted it to be logical and interesting. 
to give a setting a couple of decades down the line for the Martians to return to. And it seemed to me when you look, take a hard look at uh, humanity, you know, uh, um, we, we, we do tend to move on from disasters pretty quickly. A hurricane hits, and it's big news for a while, but then your attention moves on, unfortunately, to other things. And I think the Martian War in Britain, as existentially terrifying as it would be to anybody thoughtful, was a pretty small event, really, from the point of view of Washington or Berlin or Tokyo. Um, Probably big geopolitically, because it knocked Britain, which was a major power at the time, out of the game somewhat. But in terms of a threat to Berlin or New York, it would have seemed quite remote and distant, I think. The volcano had suddenly gone off under London. Um, so, and I think that um, probably the normal geopolitical manoeuvring and all that would have continued um, uh, deflected because Britain's damaged, but it would have gone on. So particularly in Europe, um, really the Kaiser had wanted Britain just to stay out of the First World War. Anyway, his ambitions were to knock out France and then go east into Europe and build a, a kind of commonwealth of nations under the, uh, the thumb of Germany. Um, the more Britain could be kept out of that, the better. So with Britain being so badly damaged and distracted by the threat of another war, uh, I think that would have only um, strengthened the resolve of the Germans, to be honest, to go ahead with some kind of version of the First World War. Um, and probably without Britain, it would have been that would have weakened the opposition to Germany. It would have maybe resulted in quick victories, or the war would have ground on, and and, and so on. So it seemed to me it was quite credible that the First World War it would have happened in in, in something like the way it at least started, um, but with different technologies and so forth, um, a, a different kind of Britain who were preparing for a kind of invasion from the sky. So that would have changed the balance of investment in technologies. Less of a navy and more of a land army, that kind of thing. So, so, so everything's deflected, but you you still have many of the same historical currents driving us forward, I think. Um, so that, but there were interesting choices to make. You know, you could you could imagine uh, an entirely different history unfolding from that point. If, for instance, the the nations had got together to help Britain, and that would have reduced the threat of war in the, in Europe, maybe. But I don't know. I, th- I think I think just just the way that we tend to be able to forget disasters far away and then move on with our lives as if nothing's happened. I think this would have been uh, uh, 1914 and, uh, and uh, a great war. What does it mean that the massacre of mankind has been authorized by the H.G. Wells estate? The copyright on H.G. Wells's works in the United Kingdom expired only at the end of last year, but it's not like it was legally required for you to get authorization, but it seems significant in some ways, and I just wondered what it means. Oh, it's, um, yeah, it's not legally required anymore, but when I wrote the time ships, it was. Um, I think in the States, the copyright period is 50, 50 years after your death, the death of the author, um, and it was that way um, until the 90s in, in, in Europe. And then it was up to 70 years after your death. So as you say, for Wells, that's just last year, I think. Um, so the time ships, that was well within the copyright period. And, and we had to get authorization from the, the Wells estate for, 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 for that. Um, and, and they didn't have any um, editorial comments, except just to say, 
um, I think they, they, they described it as a, as, a, as a homage. They were pleased that it was a homage to Wells. So they asked for no changes or anything, but they were pleased that it was that it took Wells seriously, you know, and, and developed his material in a kind of respectful way. Um, coming up to this book, no, we do, uh, uh, no auth- legal authorization was necessary. I think authorization is a good word, but maybe endorsement is a better word legally, you know, because since then, uh, as I, as I said, I've, I've been involved in the world of Wells, the Wellsian scholars, and the estate. There's a there are a couple of them who are of Wells' descendants who are pretty active in terms of looking after his properties and so forth. Um, and for his 150th birthday last year, um, I met quite a number of these. Uh, we, there was a big event in Woking put on by the Wells Society. And Woking in Surrey and southern England is, you know, is where the, the War of the Worlds begins in terms of the, the narrative. So the town put on a big uh, tea party for Wells' descendants, and there were about 100 of them from all over the world. Fantastic, you know, from from uh, the, the most senior, I guess, in, in a sense, is a, is a veterinary scientist who works in London. But there were, you know, little kids from America and, and Australia. And it was great. And we had a, a fairly informal day. Uh, and I gave a talk on, uh, on you know, aspects of Wells and uh, what it was like to work on his books and so forth. Um, so, uh, so I know them all pretty well now. Uh, we, we, we unveiled a statue of him in the town centre. Um, uh, so, so it's they've become uh, kind of friends now, I, I guess. Um, so that's what the authorization is in, in that sense. It's it's an endorsement from the from the family in a way. So they didn't set any parameters. They didn't say, well, it has to be some a certain something. No, not no, not at all. No, no. And certainly no editorial input about um, well, we don't like this part. Couldn't you say that part or whatever? Nothing like that at all. Um, I think you know. Uh, I like to think that I could have been very critical of Wells uh, and of his work, in a sense, you know, showing how Wells got it wrong somehow about the Martians or whatever, um, and they still would have uh, accepted it as a sort of valid commentary um, um, on uh, uh, on the man's life. I mean, some aspects of his biography are pretty controversial, really, strings of love affairs and so on. Um, so, so, but they don't block anything like that you know this is the truth about a complex man and his works are very complex as well just as long as he's still out there and being talked about and his books are still selling and reaching new audiences i think is what they really want uh, and in a way as, as, as you know controversy <laughs> sells more books than harmony usually very true were you intimidated at all by the idea of writing a, a follow-up to such a classic and and obviously it wells as someone you've come to admire I, I guess you've done it twice now so i wonder if the experience was different 22 years ago when you wrote the sequel to the time machine uh, compared to now and did you feel intimidated then did you feel intimidated now i i, I wouldn't say i got felt intimidated until back then uh with the time ships until uh the end of the process in a way I was just following the logic of the story, you know. Uh, my, my basic inspiration was that the fact that the time machine ends on such a cliffhanger. The time traveler comes comes back to the, his present, tells the story of the Eloy and the Morlocks, and goes off to 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 try again, and never comes back. So it's a classic cliffhanger, which Wells never followed up in sequels. And I was just following the logic of the story in a way, and I didn't really think too hard about, um, uh, you know, the, the giant footsteps I was following, in a sense. 
until it was published. And as I said, I, then I met, I met the Wellesian scholars and so forth, and I thought, I, I thought, blimey, you know, I've, I've, uh, um, what a cheek <laughs> for me to take on a project like that. But, it, it, but as I worked on it, it was just enthusiasm and uh, it was terrific research to do. You can imagine diving into wells and rereading a lot of wells. And in a way, this time around, I, I know far more about wells now. I've not written very much fiction to do with wells in those intervening years, but I've done papers on him, presented papers to the Well Society and elsewhere, aspects of his work. Um, so I know far more about him now than I did then. Uh, so in a way, it was more intimidating now, you know, um, uh, knowing how deep a world like the War, of the, a book like the War of the Worlds, actually is, and uh, and uh, the thought of um, trying to do it justice in, in in any kind of sequel, which is why really I've, I worked so hard on the scholarship behind it. You know, as I mentioned, the early drafts and so on. Seeing how, don't just take the book at face value. See how, try to trace the thinking that went into it and the evolution and. And, and how Wells brought out the themes he wanted to bring out, and 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 so forth. Uh, I think I think really, to be honest, my basic motivation for doing these things is just that really studying uh, a book like The War of the Worlds really intensely and taking it apart and putting it back together again in a way. You 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 know it's, you get a great understanding of I think of how uh, um, the writer actually worked uh, on on the book that you can't really get any other way. And what does the H.G. Wells Society spend its time doing? Well, it's a very low-budget thing. It's got no headquarters, it's got no library, nothing like that. Uh, it, it simply organizes conferences uh, once a year or so, sometimes in conjunction with other societies to do with figures that Wells knew, George Bernard Shaw, people like that. Um, uh, but, but it's basically a network of scholars, and they publish, they publish journals, um, and uh, contribute to other journals and, and, and so on. Um, they, they write books, the scholars individually write books, but, but they're you know, through academic publishers. It's just really a network of, of scholars who, uh, and, and, and other um, interested Wellesians, like me, I wouldn't call myself a scholar. Um, in my very first um, uh, Wells Society event, um, big seminar in London to celebrate the 100th birthday of the time machine, 100th anniversary. So there were the scholars, uh, but there was Brian Aldiss, uh, the great science fiction writer, who, who has also done Wellesian sequels. He did a sequel to Dr. Moreau, for instance. Um, and Michael Foote, who may not be familiar over, over there, but he was uh, a leader of the Labour Party at one time in the 80s. So, you know, leader of the opposition, so the next... Uh, fought a couple of elections against um, Margaret Thatcher. Um, he uh, w was very old when I met him, but he actually knew Wells. He was one of the final generation to actually know Wells. He was a young newspaper editor who commissioned pieces from Wells, the aging Wells, before the war. Um, so so, there's, so you, ha you had that kind of people, uh, uh, that kind of um, uh, contact as well. People who actually knew Wells. There's one granddaughter of Wells who used to turn up as well, sadly died now, who just remembers him when she was a little girl. Uh, there he was, this great, very playful uncle. Uh, he was a very great family man, Wells. He was great fun, very clubbable, very, uh, loved a, a good house party, you know. And that was what she remembered of him, how much fun it was to, to, to see him and uh, all the relatives and so forth and see the family. So it's, it, it's, it's just a, a network of Wellsian enthusiasts, really. 
Well, it sounds fascinating. I guess that's what every writer might aspire to, to be so influential that one day there's a society to study you well after your 150th birthday. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I've been speaking with Stephen Baxter about The Massacre of Mankind, his sequel to H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds, uh, which was released in the United States this past August by Crown, but I guess it was out uh, the previous year. Is that correct, in the United Kingdom? No, actually, no, it was this year as well. It was January, and uh, it, it got, a, got a good reception here in terms of publicity. You know, It goes on the TV a couple of times on a, a, um, book shows. Fantastic. And has there been any interest in um, turning the sequel, your book, into a movie? Well, yeah, there's been some interest. Um, there's nothing, uh, nothing's been signed, um, but, but, but there is some interest, uh, particularly with a couple of um, production companies who are looking at adaptations of The War of the Worlds. And then my book could obviously be a, um, a follow-on with some of the same characters and, and settings and so forth. Good luck. Good luck with everything. Good luck with the book and good luck with your, your future projects. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for coming on the show. Okay, thanks for having me. You can find even more interviews on the Science Fiction Channel at newbooksnetwork.com or on iTunes or other podcasting services. And, you know, if you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron, and the editor and chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And uh, the editor is Leanne Wilson. You can find us on Twitter at New Books Sci-Fi, on Facebook at NB Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. And you can find me on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books or on the web at robwolf.net. Thank you for listening.